welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Raina Yadlapati, Associate Professor and Medical Director of Esophageal Diseases and Motility from the Division of Gastroenterology at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. Today, we'll discuss her recent article, ACG Clinical Guidelines, Diagnosis and Management of Achalasia, which was published online in the American Journal of Gastroenterology earlier this year. Dr. Yadlapati, welcome. Let's begin simply. What prompted the development of this guideline? Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Lacey. It was really an honor to contribute to these guidelines and really a treat to talk about them today. The prior ACG guidelines on achalasia were published in 2013. And since then, there have been tremendous advancements in achalasia really across the board uh, with regards to treatment options, a better understanding of achalasia phenotypes, new physiologic tools, and higher quality research. So simply, it was time for an update. Great, Reina, certainly the timing is then perfect. Let's begin a little bit simply, meaning that although not a focus of this guideline, the pathophysiology of achalasia is fascinating. We know that in part, this is a disorder of the myenteric plexus and that a loss of inhibitory neurons containing nitric oxide and VIP, vasoactive intestinal peptide, contribute to the tonic contractions of the lower esophageal sphincter. But why does this occur? Well, that's exactly right. The imbalance of excitatory and inhibitory activity, uh, which results in decreased VIP and nitrous oxide um, with unopposed excitatory activity with acetylcholine. And so that leads to the failure of LES relaxation and peristalsis. The underlying etiology of this imbalance is not uh, quite known. Data shows that there may be a T-cell predominance in biopsies of patients from achalasia. And so this has led to a theory that the loss of neurons are a result of an active immune response, um, perhaps infectious or autoimmune, uh, particularly in patients that may have a genetic predisposition. Um, I do want to point out that in recent years, we're also appreciating that patients with eosinophilic esophagitis are more likely to present with achalasia. And also very interesting has been the effect of opiates. So through the opioid receptor in the esophageal body and lower esophageal sphincter, this might be another important mechanism, especially in spastic achalasia. We've actually seen that in some patients, the dysmotility resolves with opiate cessation. Great. Two great teaching points there, Reina. Thank you. So thinking about symptoms of achalasia, these are really obviously the cornerstone of any accurate diagnosis. But what are the classic symptoms of achalasia and how accurate are those symptoms? And when we think about symptoms, are some symptoms more accurate than others? And are there any symptoms that we should be really worried about? Well, the symptoms in achalasia result from an obstructive physiology at the LES or the lower esophageal sphincter. And so as a result, the classic symptoms are dysphagia to solids and liquids, or regurgitation and retrosternal non-cardiac chest pain. There are multiple patient-reported symptom instruments that have been developed. Their sensitivity and specificity for achalasia is around 70% at best. So they're helpful in clinical practice, but we can't hang our hat on them. I would say red flag symptoms for achalasia are when a patient tells me uh, that they're having regurgitation, which wakes them up from at night, or nasal regurgitation, or aspiration with a history of pneumonias as well as, of course, weight loss. Um, these are symptoms that are concerning. I'll definitely expedite their evaluation. 
especially if a patient describes significant short-term weight loss. Uh, this should really alert us to the possibility of pseudoachalasia. And I do want to highlight, and we mentioned this in the guidelines also, that 30% of patients that are ultimately diagnosed with achalasia were actually initially diagnosed and managed as GERD. So remember that achalasia is on the differential for uh, patients that are not responding to PPIs and have reflux symptoms. Raina, great, great teaching point, that non-responding PPI patient, think about achalasia. Shifting gears a bit, upper endoscopy is often the first diagnostic test employed for patients with symptoms of dysphagia and suspected achalasia. What endoscopic findings might provide a clue that achalasia is the correct diagnosis, and how accurate are these findings? Yeah, endoscopy is really critical, first and foremost, for excluding structural or mechanical lesions and assessing the cardia for sources of pseudoachalasia. But in patients with a classic type 1 achalasia, what we'll generally see is a dilated esophagus, retained saliva or food. Um, you may see puckering or tightness at the esophagogastric junction and can appreciate hypertonicity when you're passing across the lower esophageal sphincter. In some cases, you may see esophagitis, maybe stasis or candida. But these characteristic endoscopic findings may only be seen in about half of patients. But when you do see them, they have a very high positive predictive value. Um, I also want to point out that in patients with spastic or type 3 achalasia, the findings may be different on endoscopy. You may see more of a tortuous esophagus, and you may appreciate a longer high-pressure zone in the distal esophagus and at the lower esophageal sphincter. Okay. Raina, um, not all providers perform endoscopy, or maybe they have limited access to endoscopy. And for a patient with symptoms of dysphagia, they oftentimes start the evaluation with a careful barium esophagram. What are the classic findings on barium esophagram, and how accurate is this as a standalone test? Barium esophagram is a very important test in the evaluation of achalasia. The best data that we have supports a protocol with a timed upright esophagram to evaluate esophageal emptying. And classically, what we'll see is a dilated esophagus with that bird's beaking tapering at the esophagogastric junction. Now again, spastic achalasia can present differently. In, in spastic achalasia, you may appreciate more of a corkscrew pattern, tertiary contractions, along with the abnormal emptying. Uh, a study that was published, I think, in the Red Journal a couple years ago identified very favorable performance characteristics using time barium esophagram for achalasia. The sensitivity was upwards of 85 and specificity upwards of 70. And this performance increased even more when they used a tablet in the protocol. Okay. And then moving on just a little bit, um, the third, but not necessarily the last test to diagnose achalasia is high-resolution esophageal manometry. This has really transformed our ability to diagnose achalasia and also, I believe, to triage patients to the most effective treatment. It's a little tricky to do this, but for our listeners, can you help them visualize the three manometric types of achalasia and explain why categorizing patients using the Chicago classification is so important? Absolutely. So high-resolution manometry is really considered our gold standard. Uh, and as you mentioned, there are three subtypes of manometric achalasia we can see. So if you close your eyes and imagine that you're looking at a swallow on a high-resolution manometry, normally what we will see is that pressure band at the upper esophageal sphincter, which relaxes with swallowing. And then it's followed by a pressure contour of peristalsis along the esophageal body. 
During this time, the lower esophageal sphincter pressure band will also relax. This is indicative of a normal integrated relaxation pressure or IRP. Now, in all types of achalasia, the lower esophageal sphincter does not relax adequately. So we expect to see um, a maintained elevated high pressure zone or an elevated IRP. If the IRP is elevated, um, our next question is, what type of achalasia is this? And I do want to point out that the IRP threshold can be different depending on what software you're using and what position the patient is. And so this is incredibly important when you're evaluating your manometry study. Now, as far as the type of achalasia, again, if we think back to our high-resolution manometry, in type 1, there will be an absence of peristalsis. So you'll see the UES relax and then a sea of blue in the esophageal body and still with that high pressure across the lower esophageal sphincter. I also want to point out that if you suspect achalasia, but your IRP is at that upper limit of normal, this still could be type 1 achalasia. We have picked up on cases. So look at other supportive tests um, in, in this setting. Now, type 2 is our second subtype of achalasia. And in here, there's also absence of peristalsis but the esophagus is able to generate pressure against a closed upper esophageal sphincter and a closed lower esophageal sphincter. So you can imagine it as a balloon that's being squeezed from both ends. And on manometry, it manifests as panesophageal pressurization under an isobaric contour of 30 millimeters mercury. Generally, you'll see these green pressure bands. Keeping in mind that if you see foci of elevated pressurization within these bands, it might indicate embedded spasm. And studies have shown that uh, the treatment outcomes are better in type 2 versus type 1 achalasia. It might be that type 2 represents an earlier precursor to type 1. And then finally, there's type 3 uh, achalasia, which is distinct from type 1 and type 2. So type 3 is akin to spastic achalasia. In this case, when the UES relaxes, there actually will be contractility in the esophageal body. In fact, your distal contractile integral will be over 450, but it's going to have a steep phase of contraction. So at least 20% of swallows will be premature, where the distal latency is less than four and a half seconds. And it's really important to distinguish type three from other subtypes because the treatment here needs to focus not only on addressing the lower esophageal sphincter, but also that spasticity in the esophageal body. So, Raina, thinking about cases on high-resolution manometry in which the LES does not relax adequately but does not meet criteria for achalasia, what's going on there? I'm really glad that you brought this up. If that lower esophageal sphincter is not relaxing or the IRP is elevated, but the study doesn't meet criteria for any of these achalasia subtypes, this is consistent with a manometric EGJ outflow obstruction. And we can't stress enough that manometric EGJ outflow obstruction does not equate to achalasia. In some cases, it can represent an early or variant achalasia, but oftentimes it's related to a non-functional process. It could be an effect from a sliding hiatal hernia or central obesity, effective opiates, and so forth. Um, and so it should really carefully be investigated. For all of our patients that have a manometric EGJ outflow obstruction, we get a barium esophagram tablet, a flip study, we'll assess the IRP in different positions and provocative maneuvers. So Raina, you've really given our listeners a great visual description of these three types of achalasia. And before we move on and, and talk a little bit about comparison, can you just remind 
um, our listeners, how common are these three subtypes, type one, type two, and type three? Sure. So type two achalasia is considered to be the most common, um, anywhere from 50 to 70 percent of cases. Type one being the second most common, perhaps 20 to 40 percent. And then type three achalasia is reported in 5 percent of cases. But it may be that type three achalasia has been under-recognized. I know in our own experience, uh, type three achalasia comprises about 15 percent of cases. And there, this also might relate to a referral bias. Okay. Thank you very much. Now, before we start uh, discussing therapeutic options, because I know our listeners are so interested in that, um, a lot of providers want to know whether manometry is more accurate than a careful barium esophagram. Is there any data from a head-to-head comparison trial demonstrating the superiority of one test over the other? You know, HRM, or high-resolution manometry, still is considered the gold standard. Um, Probably the higher accuracy uh, that's perceived over esophagrams on its ability to distinguish these relevant subtypes, as as we reviewed before, and it has a high level of reproducibility. Um, There are some head-to-head studies of high-resolution manometry with impedance, uh, comparing it to barium esophagram, that highlight comparable and complementary performance in terms of bolus retention. So, Reina, you mentioned FLIP, functional lumen imaging probe, and uh, FLIP has gathered a lot of attention recently. What is the role of FLIP in the evaluation of patients with suspected achalasia, and is there data from randomized controlled trials to help guide us? Sure. So, FLIP uh, is a balloon-mounted catheter which um, assesses the distensibility across the esophagogastric junction and can also assess the contractile response uh, in the esophageal body. And FLIP has been compared with high-resolution manometry in diagnosis of achalasia. Consistently, it's been observed to have a high diagnostic accuracy for manometric achalasia. And really importantly, um, is able to identify abnormal distensibility across the esophagogastric junction in patients that you suspect have achalasia, but they don't have those classic findings on manometry. So FLIP right now is considered a complementary tool or supportive, often when uh, the findings are inconclusive on a high-resolution manometry. RCTs uh, comparing high-resolution manometry and FLIP have not been performed to date. Okay, that's great. That's great information. So. Focusing again on these three subtypes, Reina, in your experience, is there data to support one specific treatment such as pneumatic dilation or surgery or Botox or POM for one group over the other? Yeah, you know, we're really fortunate at this point to have high level of data to look to now for these treatments. Um, And our group actually recently published a network meta-analysis synthesizing these available RCT data. So overall, uh, POEM, and laparoscopic hellermyotomy with DOR performed comparably in terms of technical success and symptom improvement up to two years out. They may perform slightly better than pneumatic dilation, but keeping in mind that pneumatic dilation protocols varied across many of these RCTs. Um, so these specific RCTs were underpowered to assess achalasia subtypes, but for type three achalasia, there have been other studies uh, that support the superiority of an extended myotomy. So a myotomy at the lower esophageal sphincter that's extended along the esophageal body, which is best accomplished with a poem. Thinking a little bit more about pneumatic dilation, Reina, because so many providers still perform this, which achalasia patient do you think is best suited for pneumatic dilation? 
And how do you approach this? Do you always start with a 30 millimeter balloon? Do, how frequently do you do these procedures uh, in these patients? Sure, pneumatic dilation remains an important therapeutic option for achalasia. It's uh, of the three first-line therapies, the least invasive, associated with the lowest rate of complications and the lowest rate of post-therapy GERD. So in our clinical practice, we will review the data and relevant considerations for all options and involve the patient in a shared decision-making process. And many patients opt for pneumatic dilation um, given its least invasive nature. So as you said, my general protocol is to start with 30 millimeters, um, knowing that we have the ability to repeat at 35 millimeters if we need to. Some go up to 40 millimeters, but I know many labs that will stop at 35. And there is some data to support starting with 35 millimeters in young males. Generally, 30 millimeters has about a 74% efficacy if you just stop right there. So I will advise patients that there is about a 30% chance that we'll need to opt for another treatment whether it's a larger dilation, or also knowing that pneumatic dilation doesn't burn any bridges, so we can always move to poem or laparoscopic Heller myotomy. I, I will not use pneumatic dilation for type 3 achalasia since it only treats the lower esophageal sphincter, and again, in type 3, we also want to address the esophageal body. Great. Another good teaching point about the value of high-resolution esophageal manometry there. So you've mentioned surgery and the role for patients with achalasia. Um, who do you think is the ideal patient, uh, an achalasia patient and surgery? And if they decide that surgery is right for them, which surgery do you recommend? Sure. So we've really moved towards a personalized phenotype approach for achalasia. If the patient's a low surgical risk candidate, then we'll first phenotype them in terms of, again, their manometric subtype and their potential risk for post-treatment GERD. And if the patient is an appropriate candidate and they have type one or type two achalasia, we will offer all three treatment options, pneumatic dilation, laparoscopic Heller myotomy with a fundoplication or POEM. Now, if a patient already has a known hiatal hernia, known objective GERD or other reflux propagating factors, I'll generally encourage a lap Heller with door fundoplication. On the other hand, if a patient has type 3 achalasia, I'll highlight the efficacy of POEM and also that there is a risk of a blown out myotomy if an adequate myotomy is not performed. We also review these cases in a multidisciplinary conference every two weeks with our surgeons and advanced endoscopists, which is very helpful. Okay. Raina, thank you. We brought up POEM now two or three times. So this is really fascinating. You know, what was once a futuristic procedure is, is now actually pretty common. Could you briefly describe the ins and outs of POEM and who should be doing this? Who's the ideal patient? What do you think is the success rate? And how would you compare this to a Heller myotomy? A lot of information there. Absolutely. So POEM is a non-surgical third space endoscopic procedure. Endoscopically, what happens is that a mucosotomy is performed in the esophagus uh, and then creation of a submucosal tunnel, which is extended into the cardia. Uh, then a, a myotomy is performed endoscopically of the circular muscle layer, uh, completed back up proximally. And once it's done, the mucosotomy site is closed. Now, I've worked with advanced endoscopists uh, with training in third space endoscopy, as well as foregut specialized surgeons uh, that perform POEM. I think what is essential is that the proceduralist has adequate training in POEM. 
adequate endoscopic experience to deal with potential complications, a base knowledge of esophageal physiology, and a close collaboration with esophageal motility specialists. Any patient uh, with achalasia that's a surgical candidate may benefit from POEM, but as I mentioned, if a patient's at risk of GERD already to begin with, I'll generally encourage an alternative approach because with POEM, we're disrupting the LES without performing an anti-reflux procedure. And this is different from lapeller, which is usually performed at the fundoplication. So for this reason, we do see rates of GERD um, or erosive esophagitis a little bit higher following POEM. But with that said, I do know of some centers that perform transoral incisionless fundoplication following POEM. And this might be a good option for patients, especially the ones that want to prefer um, or the ones that want to avoid surgery. Uh, I will say that 2020 has really brought to light that POEM's a highly efficacious treatment for achalasia when compared to laparoscopic Heller myotomy. A landmark RCT comparing the two was published in New England Journal of Medicine earlier this year. And when we pool the data of all the RCTs that are available, the efficacy of POEMs about 88% and efficacy of lap heller myotomy in meta-analyses is around 85%. So they're very comparable. Raina, you briefly mentioned Botox. This used to be the rage and everybody thought it was gonna be a magical cure for achalasia. Has Botox fallen out of favor? Botox, along with oral pharmacologics, they're considered second-line therapeutics, primarily for patients that are not candidates for one of the first-line first, um, options. But we still utilize Botox in um, a subgroup of patients. You know, when we have a patient with inconclusive findings for type 3 achalasia or spastic esophageal disorder, oftentimes we'll trial Botox to determine whether there is a treatment response before proceeding with a more definitive approach. Okay, Raina, as we wind down, one last question. What is the role of esophagectomy? Should we keep this in our toolbox or is it time to discard it? No, esophagectomy still remains in the toolbox, but I would say at the very bottom and we need to dig very deep to reach it. If a patient doesn't respond to one of our first uh, line options, then, you know, for instance, if they don't respond to POEM, then lap heller or pneumatic should be considered. Or if they don't respond to lap heller, then a POEM or a reoperative myotomy or a pneumatic is an option and so forth. So esophagectomy is a last resort, um, understanding higher rates of morbidity and mortality with it. But in some patients, especially those with end-stage achalasia, esophagectomy may be the only option. Raina, this has really been a wonderful conversation, and thank you for your great description of the manometric subtypes of achalasia. I think we've all got that locked in our brain. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Sure. I've truly enjoyed participating in this podcast. Clearly, we're at an exciting time in achalasia evaluation and management, and yet we still see some patients being mismanaged and you know, having poor outcomes think we can do better given where we're at. Um, there, there's some key points I hope the listeners can walk away with. We have incredible tools and understanding to phenotype achalasia. So please remember that the therapy should be personalized to the patient's profile phenotype. And of course the patient's preference. Often there's more than one right answer. And also remember that EGJ outflow obstruction on manometry is not synonymous with achalasia. It requires further consideration. And finally, we're at a wonderful multidisciplinary crossroads. So I hope that we as a community can bring all of our teams together um, so we can harmoniously provide care. 
Remembering that first and foremost, it's about the patient, not our personal preferences or biases. But with that, thank you so much, Dr. Lacey and the ACG for supporting this important guideline. Okay, once again, Raina, thank you so much. And I know our listeners learned an awful lot as I did. Best wishes.